Hello, my name is Rastko Petaković and this is K-Talks. First of all, thank you for your patience over the last weeks as we were juggling with work and ever-changing COVID restrictions. With spring just around the corner, we hope to be more frequent with our episodes. And on the topic of spring, we recorded this conversation outside, walking from downtown Belgrade through the Kalemegdan Park. I really hope the sounds of streets and nature around us won't be too distracting. For us, they actually made this conversation better. My guest today is Nebojša Đurđević. Nebojša is the CEO of Digital Serbia and most recently the government named him Chair of Serbia's task force focused on developing the strategy for the startup ecosystem. Nebojša is a serial entrepreneur who emigrated from Belgrade in the early 90s, spent most of his professional career in startups and then came back to Serbia just a few years ago. We cover a range of topics, from his love for Citroën old-timers through his career in startups and all the way to his most recent passion, working to strengthen Serbia's startup ecosystem. As we are trying to figure out what makes an ecosystem successful, we begin our conversation with Citroën's ingenuity and finish it trying to figure out how to use our own unique skills to compete in this fast-changing world. I hope you enjoy. Nerusha, first of all, welcome to the first edition of, uh, of K-Talks in Walking and as we try to brand it K-Walks. Uh, thank you for, for agreeing to do this uh, with us. I'm honored to be the first one with the, the K-Walk, so yeah. thank you for inviting me. Yeah, the, the guinea pig and the premier all, <laughs> all at once. Um, we are now walking through uh, Gospodar Jovanova uh, and we're on our way to uh, Kalemegdan. So we're going to be hearing some noises. I hope they won't be too distracting for, for our conversation. They shouldn't be. And I hope they won't be uh, distracting to our listeners. So um, let me maybe start by, we, we just uh, had a, 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 an amazing lunch. And thank you for the, for the lunch. Uh, and uh, you, you know, we discussed your passion about uh, old timers. Uh, maybe we can start uh, with, a, with a bit of digression from the very beginning, you know, what, what led you into, into the old timers? So, so why, why do you have such a passion for, for them? Uh, I guess passion for cars to begin with. Um, I, I guess I was born with it. I don't know, since I've known or had the awareness about myself, I was always totally impressed and fascinated by cars. Now, my father is a mechanical engineer, and his first car in 1968 was Citroën Ducheval. <laughs> and in 60s and 70s, uh, Citroën was really the avant-garde in motoring, in, in cars, from design perspective, engineering, and everything. Mm -hmm. So, uh, my dad has been driving Citroëns all of his life. He's 85 now, and he still drives a Citroën GS, which is... 1980, it's an old timer. And as a kid, so I was born in 1965, uh, basically I was driven in Citroën de Chevaux. My dad bought a Mi 8 in 1970, and that's when Citroën GS came out. So that was the middle size mid-market car, which was light years ahead of everything else. <laughs> from the design perspective, engineering features and everything. And I was so fascinated with it as five-year-old, mm -hmm. always watching for them and, uh, you know, screaming, GS, GS, GS. So eventually my dad bought one. And somehow I got into that whole Citroen um, excellence, avant-garde and everything. And that's basically how that started. Now, it turned out that I like old things, mm -hmm. everything, architecture, clothing. Um, I love new things too, but uh, there is some connection. Mm -hmm. But with old timers, uh, it is in particular Citroën. And I've been collecting Citroën as we've discussed, like several models, etc. But yeah, Well, I'm, I'm, I'm taking a few interesting points from there. So, um, the, number one is uh, it's uh, actually a, a passion for Citroen. It's not uh, maybe you know only for for 
generally speaking, for all Alzheimer's. So, uh, and, and what you're saying, I think, uh, uh, unintentionally leads us towards your, your career and your uh, education and your business life. So, you know, the, the key reason, if I understand correctly, is you love the innovation about uh, Citroën. You love yes. the fact that it had all the uh, top engineering features, that, that it was, uh, as you said, light years ahead of its, uh, ahead of its competitors at the time. And uh, when you look at those old timers, is that the, do you still have that feeling of uh, its advanced nature or was it the, the innovation in that, you know, because some of those, some of those innovations are, are kind of in, ingenious, so. Uh, it's a bloody brilliant question. Actually, mm. I never made that connection. Now that you brought it up, I can see it in my own case. So what happened there is the um, philosophy behind Citroen at that time, which was the philosophy of the entrepreneur and the founder, Andre Citroen, was that they would give the design brief to engineers. Mm -hmm. That was the famous uh, design bureau at mm -hmm. Citroen. Uh, with engineers, artists type of mm -hmm. uh, guys. So Flaminio Bertoni, who designed the, the shape of De Chevaux, DS, Traction Avant, was a uh, fine art, uh, he had a degree in fine arts, mm -hmm. sculptor, mm -hmm. etc. So he would give them design brief and ask them to make, to design the best car they possibly could mm -hmm. without looking at cost or anything, just mm -hmm. the most advanced in every respect. Mm -hmm. So if you look at Citroën DS, it was on so many fronts daring to be completely different of the state of the art. Mm -hmm. So what they achieved was that every single of those products uh, was in production for 20 years or longer. Mm -hmm. And at the time when it was being replaced, it was still ahead technically, mm -hmm. because of that innovation, than competitors who came out that year. Yeah. So if you look at the Citroën DS, um, popularly Aikula, the shark, mm -hmm. <laughs> it came out in 1955. When it went out of production in 1975, it was more advanced than the S-Class Mercedes okay. that was current here. Mm -hmm. So yes, actually Citroën in particular, because I'm fas fascinated by ingenuity and by mm. that daring to be different approach. And if you talk about Citroen, for me, it ends in 1975. Mm -hmm. The last real Citroen was Citroen CX, because that's when Peugeot took over the control because of uh -huh. the merger, and that culture changed. Mm. So I have no interest uh, in Citroen per se after that, because it, the product was never the same. Mm. There was no pushing the envelope innovation and completely new things. Mm. Yeah, so that, that, that huh? is very, very interesting. And, and you know, because th this is because I, I, I know that a lot of people are fascinated by watches. And when they speak about watches, I think watches or um, watchmaking is still a type of trade or type of industry, I don't know how to call it, in which Yes, there are, of course, brands that are no, known for this and that, and, and most of them are known for luxury. But instead of, you know, just having one that is obsessed with innovation, there are uh, kind of innovative parts, innovative uh, ideas, innovative concepts in, in watchmaking that are, uh, you know, once, once explained, once, uh, once uh, uh, discussed, once put, uh, out in the light for everyone to see, you know, you, you, you understand what kind of uh, commitment, what kind of uh, obsession with detail, uh, and, and what kind of intellectual and engineering ingenuity those engineers had. Because, you know, for example, for, for watches to counter the, the gravity or, um, you know, some of, the, some of the minuscule forces like magnetism and, and so on, for them to address and counter them in order to get a precision that is, uh, you know, minuscule and you still need to wind and, and reset mechanical watches. You see that, that sort of, you know, obsession by chasing something that is, you know, that, it, that is very um, difficult to, to find, but still, you know, going, going on that journey. And, and as I speak these words, it pretty much seems like 
like what what startups are doing you know <laughs> you know it is it is unintentional but i think it led us to this uh, to this point so how did your uh, you, you, you said your father was a, a mechanical engineer, you're an electrical engineer. So uh, why choose electrical engineering and, and what came next? Uh, well, I guess the first question was why engineering at all? Mm -hmm. um, I was pretty bright kid, so I was excellent in all subjects. Mm. And actually my passion was more on the artsy side. So I loved, uh, you know, amateur, amateur drama, I played violin, uh, I sang in a choir, etc. But then, very early on, I realized that I really like a comfortable life. Mm. <laughs> and at that time, in the 70s and early 80s, it was quite clear um, that who knows what was going to happen with socialist country and all of that, and that an engineering degree would provide a nice and comfortable life here and anywhere else, because mm. Ohm's law, uh, you know, is the same in any language. Mm. So for practical reasons, I chose engineering. Um, and then really until the very entrance exam, I wasn't sure whether I would go for mechanical or electrical. Mm -hmm. And then I decided electrical because it was more modern. Like uh -huh. there was more new and crazy stuff coming out and thinking about possibilities it seemed unlimited. So mm -hmm. again, you put some light onto it for me now, <laughs> based on this uh, previous question. So that's why I chose electrical engineering. I graduated here, started working. So I graduated in 1990, and immediately after the country started disintegrating in a civil war, sanctions, all of that. And then I decided, number one, I did not want to participate in civil war and everything that was going mm. on politically. It was unacceptable. And the other very important thing was that I was scared that since we were under the sanctions, nothing was happening. Mm. And this was the period when I had to learn something. Mm. So what if five years passes by, I do nothing. Mm. And then, you know, yeah. will I be able Time to catch up? Can by. I be a good profession, professional person, mm. et cetera, et cetera. So I emigrated to Canada in January 93. Yeah, the, well, the best or the, the, the worst time to stay and the best time to leave. To leave. We're just taking a turn. We're just passing by Belgrade Zoo. Uh, this is important to uh, maybe, maybe mention as we're walking uh, along the way. I'm taking the, the, the floor to speak a little bit because I know how exhausting it can be to, uh, to climb up and, and speak at the same time. Um, so... You said you were a bright kid. I can I can imagine that. And and uh, how was it? Was uh, was the faculty a breeze to you at the time? Was it uh, was it easy? Did did uh, some of the some of the things you learned did they kind of capture your attention? Uh, and and if so, what was was that in the direction of uh, you know computers that were still evolving and very early on? at least in, in, in Yugoslavia? It wasn't easy at all. I went to Faculty of Electrical Engineering, ETF, which had pretty tough professors, uh, especially in the first three years. There would be those exams and subjects, basically, because of which students gave up mm -hmm. and dropped out. Uh, so I worked really hard. Uh, it was not a breeze at all. Uh, but at the same time, I did, you know, I was 24 when I graduated, and Army was included uh -huh. into that. So it was done pretty much on time, and then I had a decent average, but it was a hard work. Um, I didn't see much innovation at that time there, so mm -hmm. I went for electronics and telecommunications in terms of specialty per se mm -hmm. and at that time you would choose electronics from the first year and then in the third year you could pick either computer science or telecommunications control systems etc and uh, telecommunications were at that time really prospective like mobile mm -hmm. was in works my professor Ilya Stojanovic was a member of international group designing GSM standards yes. and all mm -hmm. of that so it was already a combination of computers um, because 
programming was used, you were filtering signals in software, which was my thesis mm -hmm. for uh, degree, etc., etc. So that was pretty much it. Although I was always a bit of an atypical engineer, mm -hmm. very extrovert, and I loved business and commercial aspects of it. I naturally mm -hmm. was inclined to that. And that proved to be the case later on. I very quickly moved out of heavy engineering design work and moved more to the business side with strong technical background, yeah. all in startups. And and how how was I think I, I'm I'm tempted to say your uh, professional development from 1G to 5G. Uh, so how did the first three Gs uh, went? You, you went to Canada and, and what happened there? Well, it happened by chance. I mean, we left really quickly, like from the time we applied in October, I think, uh, in 1992. Already by the end of December, we had permanent residence visas. So mm -hmm. in three months, I was there. And it was basically you find yourself with $1,400 of other people's money because everything was frozen in a country, as a joke, where you eat what you kill that day. If you don't mm -hmm. eat, you don't kill. So your motivation to succeed and find a job is second to none. Mm. Uh, so I went to the biggest bookstore in the world and I bought all the books I could find about writing the CVs and how to look for a job, read them in two nights and starting sending my CV. Mm -hmm. And within four weeks, I took the first job that was offered. It happened to be in a startup. I was mm -hmm. the employee number one. It was related to mobile, radio, portable uh -huh. terminals. And that's how it started. And that, that really fit me. Like uh, open, you know, empty canvas, some big ideas, opportunities, unclear kind of what to do. Startup was really not the term that was in use mm -hmm. at that time. Um, and I got infected with that. And basically since then I've been in uh, several startups, pretty much all of them in electronic payments. Now, popular FinTech uh, mm -hmm. since a few years ago. And I worked globally, um, being in payments in fintech really gives you that dual personality. Internally, you are startup guy in, uh, you know, jeans and t-shirt. But then you go to meet with Visa, Mastercard, and big banks, and you have a pinstripe yeah. suit and collar and tie and everything else. Uh, and then you also deal with some regulators because it's a very regulated area. And I worked in Asia, mainly in Europe and North America. So lots of experience in that segment. And pretty much after already five years, I moved to uh, the roles that were um, more on the business management side. Mm. And how does it feel uh, that's 30 almost years, uh, 30 plus years? After, um, after all of this, to see a place where you came from being a, a place filled with, uh, with open canvases and, and being, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting spots in this part of Europe, uh, exciting spots to uh, maybe start a similar career and look for, for white canvases. So, you know, how, how does it feel to see that? Um, how, how, does it, uh, how does it feel to see that? Well, it's exciting. Um, and I must say, I don't reconcile it. To me, it's not the same place. Mm -hmm. Like that you cannot step twice into the same, mm -hmm. you know, river or water. Uh, everything is different here. And especially uh, in that space. Um, it is... Yeah, completely different from what I left at the time, mm -hmm. per se. Uh, it's still not, uh, it's still in a way quite far from where we need to be mm -hmm. in terms of the most developed startup ecosystems. And part of that is that whole legacy and transition mm -hmm. um, that we are 
going through. But, but, but otherwise, this is uh, 80% to what I left in Canada or, mm. uh, you know, Holland, England, etc. Um, and maybe 5% of what I left here 30 years ago. Yeah, that's, that, that is very interesting and an important point because on the one hand, uh, yes, it's difficult to catch up and, and I, I don't think it's, uh, it's conceivable to have, to, to understand that, that level of cultural gap between, you know, uh, Belgrade of the, of the 90s and maybe Toronto or uh, Silicon Valley during the same, same that period and see how that gap has narrowed. And yes, of course, we still have a lot of work to do that this is still uh, work in progress. Uh, but still, the, you know, on the one hand, the world has, has gotten way smaller and uh, we seem to be more able to learn from each other to, uh, yeah, we just passed some dogs. Uh, the, the people are, are finding it much easier to learn from each other and to share in experiences and to share in uh, what fails and what succeeds, which I think is very important for, for startups. Uh, so, you know, seeing Serbia now, seeing Belgrade now and this uh, Belgrade Novi Sad or, or the rest of uh, Serbia as an ecosystem, I think it's fair to say we have a lot of space for those empty canvases and a lot of uh, a lot of framework for them to conceive their ideas and to start building teams and to maybe think boldly and to maybe create some wild ideas but uh, how easy is it for them to get traction to get to the uh, size that that makes it uh, that makes it look more like something that we're seeing in, in Silicon Valley or Berlin or Estonia and other you know, notable places that, that we can maybe hope to compare with. Yeah, here we are talking about the startup ecosystem, uh, which consists of those founders and startups and teams, investors, uh, startup support organizations, that help them and also domain experts that can also mentor them and help them out. And there is a lot of correlation. And that environment actually um, uh, ensures that e uh, startups and founders actually have a much better chance to succeed uh, in terms of number of them and if you want the value that's being uh, created. I would say that uh, our ecosystem developed a lot over the last five years. So there was a growth on all sides in terms of value, number of startups. And, um, but despite that, there is still a relatively small number of them. There are some exceptional success stories with some of them emerging as global leaders in their areas. But that's more of a, an exception rather than the rule. Mm -hmm. It basically happened because of, you know, number one, high quality of people involved, some luck, good idea, etc. Mm -hmm. And if you compare that to Berlin or Toronto or Amsterdam or London, uh, what we need to do here is to uh, close that gap in terms of the characteristics of our ecosystem to improve mm -hmm. it, to ensure that um, having those big success stories uh, is more of a rule rather than exception. Uh, exception. Right, I think this is a, a very, very important and strong point to, uh, to underline. Uh, we actually, what we want to achieve with our ecosystem is, uh, well, so far we've been lucky a few times and we don't want to depend, uh, rely on, on luck going forward. So we need, to, uh, we need to make sure that we're, you know, instead of betting on, uh, you know, one, uh, one place in the, kind of the, the roulette table, we're actually betting on, on multiple of them. Uh, and, and so how do we do that? Are there enough startups uh, in, this, uh, in this community? And, and, you know, how do we, if not, how do we get there? What's the, what's the next step? This seems to be like a chicken and egg problem a little bit. Yeah. Well, 
I mean, as you know, at Digital Serbia Initiative, this was one of the first things that we looked at, you know, two and a half years almost when I, when I, when I joined. Um, there was a lot of excitement about the ecosystems and startups, but we didn't know much about it. Mm. And being an ecosystem and complex, it was very difficult to say, well, we want to improve it. What does that mean? What mm -hmm. exactly are we improving? So the first thing that we did was to say, let's pick the methodology uh, that's evidence-based, data-driven, um, that's uh, globally accepted, and let's, based on that methodology, do a thorough assessment of our ecosystem to see what are the strong points that we can leverage to be even more successful and what are the gaps that we have to, to close. And then also use that as a tool to monitor ourselves and benchmark ourselves against other ecosystems because they, all smart people around the world are trying to do the same thing because mm -hmm. uh, startups uh, are the main driver of innovation, employment, growth, etc. Mm -hmm. So uh, that's where we are competing. We are not competing with other sectors here. So we teamed up with Startup Genome, which is a San Francisco-based firm that specializes in this and mm -hmm. that has assessed more than 200 uh, startup ecosystems around the world. Mm -hmm. They have a methodology that assesses startup ecosystems with 10 or 12 success factors, which determine in which of four uh, life cycle uh, phases the ecosystem is. Mm -hmm. And because they are complex and the resources are always limited, based on the phase that you are in, you know what are the top three priorities that you need to focus on to move it forward. Because you mm -hmm. could put your energy on something that's not necessarily directly relevant to the progress of your ecosystem. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you will not make as much progress as you would, as you would hope. Yeah. Right, so you have, uh, you have four four uh, key stages, and you have, uh, in, in some way, a recipe on how, how to move from stage one to stage two with greater speed, right? That, that, is, the, that is the ball game, in order to, to remove luck. So, we, what, what is the stage we're in right now? Yeah, and I, I remember the question, I guess I just got distracted yeah. a bit by the music. So, uh, <laughs> it is linked to what you just said, but going back to the previous one. So, it was determined through that assessment two years ago that our ecosystem is in the first phase of uh, life cycle, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which is fine. There are only four uh, stages, and in the top one are only two ecosystems in the world, Silicon Valley and London. Mm -hmm. Everybody else is kind of elsewhere. Uh, we know what are the strong points. We, we are very well globally connected. Our founders, directly with relationships with founders from the leading uh, global ecosystems. Uh, we have high quality, affordable engineering uh, talent. Um, the, uh, and we had a very significant growth. However, the number of our startups is still relatively low. Mm. There are, uh, you know, three to 400 startups in total, which is fine for the country of our size for this stage of development. Um, but for this stage, the key um, priorities and success factors are local connectedness, which mm -hmm. means the uh, quality connections between founders, founders to founder, exchange of knowledge and experience, founders to investors, founders to experts. Uh, we score low there, mm -hmm. below global average, and that's really significant because evidence shows that ecosystems with strong local connectedness have twice as fast revenue growth, average revenue mm -hmm. per startup, compared to those that don't. So we are missing a lot in creating value in the ecosystem. The other important success factor is early stage funding. Early stage funding being a seed and series A. Mm -hmm. We really uh, are behind there. Uh, our startups like are uh, you know, 50% below in terms of the number of those that receive deals. And also the average value of that funding is almost 50% of the global average for ecosystems that are in the same uh, life cycle uh, phase. So that's the other thing that we um, have to fix. 
And um, the whole entrepreneurial um, mindset. mindset right. And also the um, number of exits, mm -hmm. like either acquisitions or uh, in initial public offerings that are over $100 million, etc. We have few of those. Mm. So this growth that we had until now happened by chance. But if we want to continue to progress, we have to uh, come up with a strategy and specific measures to focus on what are the key gaps that we have to close and to do it. Right. And so to summarize it, those would be to increase the number of startups, to increase the quality of startups, because that will drive the deal flow. The mm -hmm. reason why we don't have enough early stage investment, we don't have uh, local VCs to speak of, you know, very mm -hmm. small one of them. We don't have active angel investor group. Uh, uh, one of the main reasons for that is there is not enough deal flow. Mm. There is not enough investable startups to make it worthwhile um, for them to to do it. So if I if I get this correctly, and I think that this is a lot of information to digest. So on the one hand, I think uh, we are far ahead of uh, of many others in terms of particularly this uh, international connectedness. Uh, that, that exists, and, uh, and also uh, high-quality workforce, so uh, talented engineers and talented people all around. So we have, in a way, a cheat code for, the, for leveling up, but uh, before we can use the cheat codes, we need to, uh, you know, we need to get into the game uh, to, to, to kick it off. And uh, so how, how, is, is this a little bit... Uh, is this common or uncommon throughout other ecosystems? Do you know? Is this, uh, uh, is this maybe a trait of Serbia that, that is very, very much known for uh, the connection with the Aspore? That is the way that, you know, you, you are not the Aspore, you're now some, some, <laughs> something between a, a, a you know, re-resident and, and, and uh, expat, so somewhere in, in between. So is, is that maybe why uh, we have this special, I would say, trait? And, and uh, yeah, let's start with that and then we'll pick it up. Well, this global connectedness, I think is certainly, up to a certain degree, linked to um, our diaspora. Mm -hmm. Um, because those connections are established and as, as you know, we have very strong connections and actually help from Serbian entrepreneurs, which is a network of, uh, you know, our people per se who live, uh, it started in, in, in North America, in the US, Canada, now it's uh, in the UK as well, they have a chapter in Berlin, who are um, kind of first or second generation of our immigrants there. They are successful tech entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And they are passionate about their origins, uh, the abilities, and they actually help startups with Serbian founders, regardless of whether they're in Serbia or they're elsewhere. Yeah. Um, and and you know they certainly help us uh, here in our ecosystem on on many uh, accounts. But I would also answer the other part of your question, which is, is this unusual, um, like the, the stage that mm -hmm. we are in, in terms of issues with number of startups mm -hmm. and quality. No, everybody faced that mm -hmm. at this stage. And uh, luckily, there are known uh, methods how to deal with that. And it's fairly uh, clear. If it is not viable for private investment at this stage to accelerate the development of the startup ecosystem, because it's in the national interest, because it, it improves innovation, uh, drives employment, uh, high added value uh, tech jobs, etc., etc., uh, the governments are investing. And that's that intervention um, of the state side to assist the accelerated development of the startup ecosystems. I witnessed that 10 years ago in Toronto when they were doing it in Ontario. We also did a case study a couple of years ago through Startup Genome uh, with, in Holland with Amsterdam on what they did uh, just a few years ahead of us. Like mm -hmm. we're not talking here, oh, we are two decades yeah. behind or anything. And basically it comes down to the following. 
we need to increase the number of startups. We need to, um, you know, broaden the top of that funnel. Number mm -hmm. of teams getting into uh, starting up uh, uh, an idea and trying to bring the product and validate it. So the issue that we have here is that more than 50% of our startups are bootstrapped or self-funded. They haven't received any financing. So that results in two things. The first one is obvious. They have uh, less chance to succeed because without money, just you know, with what they have from friends and the family, um, their uh, speed in terms of developing the product, trying to validate in the market, the number of times they can pivot and change direction mm. because you're you searching for the right mm. formula is kind of limited. And then compared to others that have, uh, that received funding, uh, you, you, you're not on equal terms. The second, the less visible, which is really hurting us badly, is that because of this being bootstrapped, let's say you and I start, we mm -hmm. have a brilliant idea, um, and we try it, one out of 10 succeeds. So mm -hmm. failing is a norm, and it's perfect, you learn. Yeah. So one fails, okay, we spent money, maybe we have money for another startup, and we have stomach for it, we do it. That one likely fails. Mm. And then we pack up and go and go to work for a big corporation. So all of the experience that we had is lost from the ecosystem. Mm. And that startup genome research shows we don't have enough startup experience. And they measure that as number of employees in a startup who had prior two years of startup experience. So how do you deal with that? And that's proven. It's basically the, uh, you need to promote, on one hand, tech entrepreneurship, like opportunities, get people to understand what it is and, um, you know, awaken that desire and drive. And so get more people to get into it. And then what typically the measure, the, the public policy is, provide pre-seed grants. Mm -hmm. So that's what they did in, in, in Ontario. That's what they did in, in Amsterdam. You have a selection committee based on experienced tech entrepreneurs who can identify the team. So let's say in Serbia, the, the proposal is to say, let's give 50 pre-seed grants each year. Mm -hmm. And that grant needs to be big enough that they can actually get the minimum viable product and validate, see whether it works or not. So that's roughly 30K euro. But if it doesn't work, don't get stuck in that. Fail quickly and get those people into another idea. So basically this selection committee needs to identify teams. It's more important than the idea at that stage. Say, hey, Milan and Jelena, they are great. Idea, okay, whatever. Let's give them 30K. Let's give them some mentorship. Mm. Let's see what they can do. Mm. A few months later, if it has legs, you get them into acceleration. If it doesn't, you kill that and get them into something else. Right. So, you give those pre-seed grants and you promote tech entrepreneurship to get people into this. Uh, you help them with mentoring. And then also each year, you, in, to improve the quality, you have the accelerator program. Again, mm. proven strategy. So now you see, oh, uh, Peter and Milica now have some traction. Let's get them into the accelerator. So three months of strong program. Uh, business skills, how to get to market, etc., how to grow, um, strong international uh, competent mentors for six months to help them, and then also uh, provide some co-investment that follows the private investment that is secure. You need to push them, because mm. a very important skill is being able to raise money. If you give too much free money, then you are really doing a disservice to your startups. Yeah, let, let's maybe put a pause on that because I think this is a very, very important point to drive home. Uh, we started off by saying uh, we've gotten lucky a few times with, uh, with some of the successes of the, of the startup ecosystem here. Uh, these are pretty much uh, exceptions rather than, than rules. And if we investigate uh, our ecosystem and compare it to, uh, to others more advanced, it, it doesn't seem that there is a lot of magic in Silicon Valley or London or, or Berlin. It is just, uh, well, I would call it the, you know, maybe a number of uh, moves people 
have at their disposal. So I think your, your example with, uh, with a startup, us forming a startup is, is actually very good. So we have, you know, move one, let's, uh, you know, if we have an idea, our idea has maybe one move, let's do one startup, 90% uh, chance uh, we will fail. And then uh, we have maybe a room for another move. Uh, and then we are again facing, uh, facing the possibility to fail. So what, what, what seems to be the key difference between something like Berlin, let's not uh, uh, go, go beyond Berlin for now at least, uh, is that we increase the number of moves that any idea can have so that it can... That any team, not idea. Any team. Yeah, okay. uh, idea fails, right. let's say. But yeah. uh, you invest in a right. team at that right. stage, and that cannot be a private investment. Right. That's right. really the, the, the state policy mm. to grow that pool of tech right. entrepreneurs. But I think it, it's also important. I, I, I used idea intentionally because in many in many cases, the, the idea won't have the, the step number one because it is lacking this entrepreneurial mindset that, you know, there are a lot of uh, concepts, ideas that people are maybe too afraid to, uh, to start. Maybe they, they opt for uh, joining uh, another startup, joining another big corporation, joining uh, or, or even, uh, you know, emigrating and trying their luck uh, elsewhere. So it, it seems to me that both of these things, both ideas and teams need, uh, you know, more confidence, more moves. And these two, the, these two things require, well, essentially experience and money. So that seems to be the, the, the key factor. And if we go back to what we were just saying about the, uh, the ecosystem and how to uh, kickstart it, uh, and this is, I think, where the working group that you're uh, chairing uh, steps in, is how do we, as a country, build an environment? It is not about picking winners. It is about creating an environment that allows for the same number of moves and that allows for the intake of these ideas into teams that will then uh, uh, promote them. So is this a fair summary of what, what we need to do? Uh, essentially, it is. Mm -hmm. So, as I mentioned before, the ecosystem is complex and um, neither private sector nor the state can do it alone. Mm -hmm. So, you need an alignment between the public and private sector on the key policies and actions to be taken over a reasonably long period, like you need a five-year plan mm -hmm. in order to advance and focus on the right things uh, for the state of your uh, ecosystem. So this is why this, um, working, this working group tasked with developing a strategy for development of the Serbian startup ecosystem for five years is really, I think, critical for uh, further accelerated development of our ecosystem because organically it would grow at 9% per year, which would bring us from current 300 only to 450 in five years. And what you're trying to do is yeah, reach... And, yeah, what, what basically uh, the evidence shows that you need to have uh, 700 minimum, like between 700 and 1200, to have that critical mass in sheer number of startups in order to get to that globalization phase. Uh, and at the same time, you need to increase the quality of those startups so that sufficient number of them are fundable. And you need to increase the investment level here to mm -hmm. give people the, the, the teams to, to chance to you know, go sufficient <laughs> a number of times around. Uh, so those are the key elements. And for that, you need a public and private sector. So in this working group that I, I'm honored to chair, uh, basically, what we have is, on one hand, representatives of all relevant ministries, mm -hmm. economy, finance, uh, etc., on one side. And then we have all the key players in the ecosystem on the private sector side. So we have science and technology parks from all over Serbia, all ICT hubs, startup mm -hmm. uh, support uh, hubs. Um, we have uh, the World Bank uh, Innovation Fund, which is active here. We have the uh, managing partner of uh, a VC fund. Uh, we have a couple of uh, success, globally successful tech founders uh, in this um, working group as well. 
and what we brought to the table as a, we are not starting with an empty a canvas in this case. So all of this research that we have done, and it was done in collaboration uh, with the ecosystem, because with that startup genome research, our partners on that were Ministry of Innovation and Technological mm -hmm. Development, like hand in hand, and UNICEF was also our partner. We cooperated with everybody in the ecosystem, and uh, the results of that and recommendations that are based on uh, best practices globally are the starting point for this strategy. Right. So I would say that we have a solid foundation, maybe 70 or 80% of that in place. And this experienced group covering public policies, private sector experience, now have a great base to use to enhance, amend, and really do a good strategy for the next five years. Um, and if you look at the key goals, it would be increase the number of startups, increase the quality of startups, mm -hmm. uh, uh, increase the investment. We need to close that funding gap between us and the other ecosystems that are in the same uh, phase. And we need to um, improve the local connectedness within ecosystems. And ecosystem is pretty much at the city level, like 100 kilometers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, geographic area. So Belgrade and Novi Sad is one ecosystem. Yeah. Niche would be another one. And we need to see, to find a ways to uh, interconnect them. Mm -hmm. So find a way that they, with best practices, develop their local ecosystems and then how to connect them and use Belgrade and Novi Sad as a hub, which is extremely well connected globally to uh, help, uh, you know, Kragovac, Niche, um, etc. Et um, so that's basically where we are with, uh, with the working group. I'm also quite happy to say that if you look at this working group on the government side, uh, we don't have any ministers or political uh -huh. figures. <laughs> All of the people in that working group on both private and you know, state side are people who are actually experts in their domain, and this is a real working group. A real-life experience with what they're... Yeah. Yeah, with their area yeah. of expertise, and I really expect uh, that we will we will produce a decent strategy and action plan for minimum two years uh, within these six months. Um, I think I made a point earlier. It is uh, it is a very sort of difficult uh, terrain, difficult waters to to cross when you have a situation where the the state is involved in encouraging a, a certain ecosystem. Uh, you know. In, in, most, in most normal circumstances, the state's role should be to regulate and to create an environment and have an environment that allows uh, entrepreneurial uh, mindset to thrive and ideas to be brought to life. Um, and in this case, you know, we, we also have this funding gap. So there needs to be, if I understand you correctly, some level of uh, states, you know, gunpowder, some, some kind of firepower. We are just crossing through the uh, Kalemegdan Fortress's uh, <laughs> cannons. War museum. War museum. So, so this, is, uh, uh, this is a good, uh, good place to use the, the, the term gunpowder and, and firepower. So we need to bring uh, the, the, the states resources into this and and you know there there is a fine line to to uh to thread in this uh, in this case so how how do we do that and and what are the experiences of others yeah this? and again luckily they're best practices mm -hmm. so what is proven in other ecosystems is that governments anywhere in the world are notoriously bad in picking winners mm that's not what they do, mm. uh, so that's perfectly fine. And that's recognized. So, for example, if you look at what we are recommending based on the analysis and everything, in order to increase the number of startups, we should give 50 pre-seed grants using the, um, uh, the might of the public state budget and policies. As you said, you have to use that to grow. The key thing here is that in the selection committee, 
that selection committee is driven, decisions are made by people who have that background, mm -hmm. successful tech entrepreneurs or investors, etc. Uh, and that's recognized. And uh, in our discussion so far with the government, they completely acknowledged and embraced mm -hmm. this idea. The same apply for the accelerator. So, you know, we will have here um, uh, an accelerator and there is one that has been in the making for more than a year. And, you know, we were happy to be consulted to, mm -hmm. to provide input into the design that's being done by Innovation Fund and the World Bank. Um, in that accelerator, they are going to have, uh, let's say, 40 startups per year that qualify and then you help them as I described with mentorship, um, uh, funding uh, programs, etc., etc. Uh, it was also accepted there that the selection committee there will be driven by people from private sector with that background. Mm -hmm. So that ensures that you use the policy and budget might of the state, but it's directed by people with the experience from the private sector. And that's what they have done in Amsterdam, that's what they have done in uh, Toronto that I observed uh, personally, and you know, I can point to a number of other successful examples from the world. When it comes to closing the funding gap, it's done similarly. So, um, uh, basically there are a couple of models. Uh, one is that as part of the accelerator, there is a public funding facility where if the startup secures a private investment, so let's say you and I have that startup mm -hmm. and it's doing well, we are in the accelerator, and we now secure from three angel investors in total 100K euro as their investment. We are eligible to get a co-funding grant from the accelerator in that amount. Mm -hmm. So that is beneficial to us as founders, to the startup, that's beneficial to the investors. And again, the public money went where the private investors are putting their own money mm. and they are committed to help with mentoring and assisting those startups to, to succeed. Mm. Um, the, other mechanism that's being considered is called fund of funds. So what happens is that the uh, that public money is put into um, a, a venture capital fund, uh, which has a manager, but that fund does not select individual startups to invest in. Mm -hmm. Rather, they will say they will make a public call and say, "Hey, we invite venture capital funds with the mandate to do early stage investment in Serbia." To join forces. To, to, yeah, to say, hey, uh, come to us, we will become your investor. Mm. So if you and I now create a venture capital fund and find, uh, you know, 50 high net worth individuals and we collect, uh, you know, 2 million euros mm -hmm. to invest, we can go to this fund of funds manager and say, hey, why don't you become an investor, limited partner in our fund? Mm -hmm. And successful schemes will show where uh, the fund of funds manager would invest up to 50%. So if we collect 2 million, he may put 2 million as an investor. So, so you double the, the amount of yeah, uh, firepower. And you're basically, this is very stimulating for creation of the domestic venture capital. And that's something that we really uh, need. We should not rely only on uh, foreign uh, venture capital, which mm -hmm. is needed. We need to use it properly. We would like them to lead the rounds here, but we want to capture that for various reasons. One of them also being we ha already have lots of people who were successful in business or whatever, mm -hmm. who are not necessarily founders or angel investors. And instead of buying real estate uh, in Belgrade and, and whoever, who knows where, you should give them this asset class to invest in as well, in a proper uh, way. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of uh, a lot of traction is already generated in that in that domain with the uh, laws on alternative funds, and I think for everyone, anyone in in Serbia and elsewhere wanting to invest in pre-seed and, and early stage uh, startups, this is a great place to do it because of all the all the tax reliefs and all the uh, incentives that one can get, and then if combined together with this. Uh, firepower by the by the state that makes it even more likely that uh, those ventures will uh, ultimately be very successful so you know it, it all sounds like like a well-rounded uh, uh, story but I, I have a question to that so 
if, uh, if we assume everyone else is chasing the same, um, the same paradigm, i.e. remove luck from the equation and, you know, do your homework, uh, make, the, the, make the system work based on its merits, uh, do, you know, check all the, all the uh, spots that you need in order to make something happen. So how do you, uh, how do you actually Get ahead. Clo get ahead, yes. Close that gap and, and get ahead of those. Yeah, I would just like to uh, comment on something that you said previously, then I'll answer. Mm. Uh, uh, yeah, in terms of that state might, uh, we talked about the bu budget, but also you mentioned some very important policy things. So uh, the government here in the last, whatever, two, three years really made some uh, good progress on making the environment with their policies that stimulate this. Uh, like that double R&D deduction, mm. um, IP box, uh, uh, founders of startups uh, having a tax holiday for taxes and source deductions for three years, etc. So those are all those are important elements. And at the same time, I want to say that although a lot of progress is made, there is still a lot to do because mm. the system that we come from uh, was created, legal system was created to protect the whatever, the people's uh, capital or however it's called, property. And it still has so many friction points for free enterprise mm. in, in liberal uh, capitalism. So what we have is that uh, founders are facing uh, some practices that create so much friction that it's that doesn't exist elsewhere. Mm. And we have a lot of our startups, and uh, probably the, the best of them, uh, strictly, immediately leapfrogging and getting founded elsewhere and using this only as a development center or cost center. So there is still a lot to do on, on the policy side and that's why it's important to be engaged with the government, work together, align and keep making that progress until we are kind of on par with others there. Now, where is our unfair advantage? Mm -hmm. uh, come to your yes. final question. Last question. So, uh, you, you I, I can point to two areas here. Number one, by chance, we are in top 10 globally in terms of startup ecosystems, for example, in gaming and blockchain sectors. Mm -hmm. So that gives you an unfair advantage compared to the other startup ecosystems. Because in gaming, let's say, you will have know-how and expertise, how to develop and commercialize games. You will have relationships with publishers, etc. So a startup in Berlin does not have the same chance mm -hmm. in gaming. In those areas. Uh, mm. In those areas. And that's why it is good to try to leverage that. Mm. That's your unfair advantage. The other thing could be cultural, historical. So what we have here, which on one hand drives me nuts, uh, the cultural <laughs> traits of us being for 500 years under the Turks, and everybody trying to Whatever obstacles or you put, the, the people look for workarounds, they're very creative on finding the ways around yeah. whatever they want to find a way. Which you will not have in Canada or in Germany where people, you know, follow the rules, etc. Mm. So this is almost in genes, mm. like over that period of time, almost evolution kicked in. <laughs> uh, so people are really creative here. Like mm. there is that different way of thinking. And you can see that in many examples um, of our people being successful, like for my generation, mm. you know, how many of us left and, you know, pretty much majority of people are uh, quite successful. And that came out, that creativity in some way. The other part of the unfair advantage, which I think is already helping us, I can also trace to our crazy schools, crazy in positive way. So, when I was entering the School of Electrical Engineering, they were admitting 120 students in electronics, 120 into uh, like power systems, and 80 in technical physics, which is more scientific research. Everybody wanted in electronics because that's mm -hmm. where computer science was, control systems, telecoms, etc. Now, that year, 860 uh, students wanted to get enrolled. All of them wanted into those 120 spots. Mm -hmm. 220 with 100% average. Uh -huh. Crazy entrance exam in physics and math. 
So we passed. And then when you finish that school, and it's not a breeze for anyone, <laughs> we felt, I was so self-confident, there is no thing that you can throw at me that I cannot solve by mm. going, to, going to a bookstore, buying a few books, reading them for two nights, and then I will be able to do something about it. And that self-confidence and open mind in tackling the problems, feeling confident that you can solve them, uh, I think is also, in a way, an unfair advantage. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not founded, but it's liberating. Mm -hmm. So, you know, probably we were not more talented or capable. But having that confidence, I think that's something that's... And, and I can still see it here. Like, yeah. you know, with, with this generation of young entrepreneurs, they're quite cocky mm -hmm. and confident. Now, there are gaps they have to close, like business skills are not good, mm. sales is not uh, good, but that's something that we'll be focused on, focusing on with strong programs to help them with that. Yeah. I think, you know, to come back to the conclusion, it seems as if this is not necessarily a competition between, you know, first of all, this is not a competition between states. This is a competition between ecosystems. and. Uh, uh, this is, you know, one one place uh, in the economy where it seems that it is not the the whole economy that works as a, as as a system, as a, as an you know a body, a whole body organism. It is rather these uh, these hubs, these kind of bright spots in the in the map when you you know in in nighttime where where everything lights up. So for, for me, the first takeaway is this: we need to we need to uh, strengthen this uh, environment of uh, understanding what an ecosystem is and understanding that actually the state is playing a supporting role, I would say, in this, and not not the the, the lead role. Exactly. Uh, because you know, every time I hear about uh, a state interfering in in economy, I. Uh, I question that, you know, that, that's uh, my yeah, this kind is of basic supporting, nature. Not interfering. Yeah. Yes, yes. So this, this is supporting, this is actually following and not leading. I think that that is very important because if the, if the state funds are going to follow private funding and private decision making and private risk leading uh, and the state will be the one following, that, that seems like something worth trying and, and worth, uh, worth exploring. Uh, and, and on this note, you know, if, if you were a young um, graduate from the ETF today, would this, uh, would, would this ecosystem that we have today, this is 2021, uh, or, or the one that, that this working group is hoping to build in the future, is it worth, uh, worth staying? Um, I think definitely yes. Uh, especially at this time with the level of connections that we have through technology and also the travel, which is quite affordable now compared mm -hmm. to 30 years ago. Just a long-distance call was $1.50 a minute when I, was, <laughs> when I left. Now yeah. we speak forever for free. Uh, uh, definitely, yes. I think people will still uh, leave, mm -hmm. but that's like anywhere in the world. If they leave for the right reasons, um, and then circle back and stay connected, that's perfectly okay. And maybe if we become uh, attractive enough to, uh, to bring in people. So, so let's, you know, if, if there is a, a blockchain enthusiast in, in uh, I don't know, Hungary or, or Albania or Greece, maybe, maybe Belgrade is the right place. If they are a gaming enthusiast, maybe this is the right place. And for those not seeing that unfair advantage as their uh, kind of home strength, Maybe it makes, uh, you know, th those are not the, you know, I'm, I'm asking myself, are those souls worth saving? Are those people worth kind of trying to be pushed in? Or we really need a global economy where people chase their dreams based on what, what, what is the best place to, to chase them? This is the, you know, going back and circling around this question on unf unfair advantage. Well, there are a few questions there. So I didn't get into those details, but definitely one of the success factors is uh, resource attract, attraction or attractiveness. Mm. So ecosystem is also measured by how many foreign uh, founders it attracts. And it's exactly what you're talking about. Mm. So if we are strong uh, and our ecosystem provides great environment, as we discussed, let's say, in gaming and blockchain, it will attract 
you know, with other things mm. being good as well, it will attract uh, founders from other places to come here if they want to do startups in those uh, areas. Um, uh, so, yeah, certainly this is one of the things that we'll be doing, and that's in the latter part of those five years, as you approach the next phase, which is globalization. We are in the activation phase. Um, I'm uh, going right ahead now. of myself, and yeah. we're, we're still uh, skipping yeah. those early, yeah. and early the, stages. In respect to your comment on the government, they are signaling that. We've seen mm. that the willingness to do it properly is there. There are good examples and the best practices. Also, in this working group, we couldn't get everyone because mm. it's well impossible to manage but um, you know we are inviting uh, everybody ecosystem you know we are publishing what the topics are who want to contribute we will be doing consultations and we want to get the ideas and comments from the ecosystem so we really hope that we can uh, develop a strategy and action plan that will live and produce results and, and we assume that the government will uh, stay the course uh, to support and not interfere or, or lead, per se, as it seems to really be the case for now. Get more comfortable in the supporting role, that yes. is. I think this is a, this is a good, good point to end the, the conversation. Uh, thank you, Navusha, so much. This has been uh, a great experience. And thank you for being the, the guinea pig for the first, <laughs> for the first K-Walk. My pleasure. I like walking. Um, it provides, I think, maybe for even more natural uh, discussion rather than being in the studio or something. So, thank you.